Hey, good morning, everyone. So glad to be with you. I'm excited and honored to be able to close out this series. Uh, it's a pretty exciting time to be a part of Trinity and hearing all that God's done in the last couple of years in the craziest probably two years of my life, certainly I can remember, and seeing how God is faithful and moving and working this church. And um, I'm excited about the future. I don't know about you guys. Nobody? Nobody else? Well, you'll be excited after the business meeting today at four when you hear more about it. Um, I've been given the great opportunity to close this series and talk to you about persecution, which I have to be honest with you, I don't really feel totally qualified to speak to. Um, uh, there, I also have to admit to you, this is confession time. My wife is not at this service, so I can say this. There has been a time that I have pretended to be facing more persecution than I actually was for the sake of my marriage. And I'm going to explain to you, okay? So part of my job is I travel a lot. And, um, and I get to go to some fun places, and not all travel is boring and bad. Sometimes it's a lot of fun. In fact, recently I got to go on a trip with Pastor David. We went out to Branson, Missouri, which apparently is the Las Vegas of Missouri. I don't know. It didn't seem like that. But um, we, we got to go out there. Him and I and a couple of our friends were doing a presentation to a group of leaders. And, and so uh, the presentation was an hour long, but the trip was three days long. So if you're ever wondering, like, what do you do on a trip with Pastor David when you got a lot of time to kill? You could probably guess the answer is you travel around and you eat food. That's about what it was. So we, we go on this trip. We land in Springfield, Missouri, and we land in the weather. It's 60 degrees outside, which this time of year for us here in upstate field, it might as well be 90, right? I mean, we were like, we were ready to party. It was like, this is awesome. And uh, I wanted to rent a convertible. He wouldn't let me. So, but we have a great time. We go and we just start, we, we go to a great burger spot. We go to one of the best donut places and we eat way too many donuts and, and we go to the hotel and the hotel's beautiful and it's awesome and we're, we're hanging out, we're having a great time and of course we do have that one hour of work that was, that was a challenge but the rest of the time we're having a blast, right? And, and so some of, the, some of the trips I get to go on like this are honestly, they're a ton of fun especially when you get to travel with friends but the problem is then I call back home to, to speak to my family and I realize quickly that my wife has now been left at the house with both kids and the dog and all the work. And sometimes when I call back, she's not having as much fun as I am, right? So every now and then I'll call home and I'll be like, hey, babe, how's it going? She's like, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's been crazy. The kids are acting up. They're fighting. The dogs are going nuts. Took us two hours to do homework. Uh, The dinner's burning. I can't wait for bedtime to come. And I'm like, "Yeah, uh yeah, I hear you. And so in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, I cannot, I can't be totally honest about what's happening on this trip, right? She'll be like, well, how's your, how's your trip going? How's your day going? I'm like, oh, man, babe, I feel you. I really do. It's been a, it's been a hard time. It's been a tough trip. Like, you know, it's been, it's been tiring. It's been exhausting. Um, David's been a real, a real pain. I mean, I've had to deal with a lot of his stuff. I've been coaching, mentoring him a lot. And it's just, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough day. She's like, what's the weather out there? I was like, ah, it's, it's 60, but it's a balmy 60. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... It's not nice. It's, it's, it's brutal, really brutal. I'm exhausted. You know, meanwhile, I'm, I'm laying on the bed with donut crumbs still on my, on my chest from our snack earlier. And, uh, and so, but I can't, you know, I mean, I, I, it's for her. I'm doing this for her, right? Because I don't want her to feel even worse. So I have to sometimes embellish a bit of my persecution in those moments. But the truth is, I'm not the best person to speak on persecution. But Jesus is. 
And so this morning, we're going to see what he has to say, and we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to speak through his words to our heart about what it means to be blessed for those who are persecuted for his sake. So I want to read to you Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read, then we'll pray. We'll jump in. Here's what it says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, we thank you for this morning that you're going to speak to us through your word, through these beatitudes and this message that you have for each one of us, God. And I pray that our hearts would be open, Holy Spirit, to you speaking to us, to you convicting us, to you showing us the truth of your word and helping us leave this place changed and transformed and more in love with you and your mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to share three thoughts with you this morning that I think are evident in this text. We're going to talk about the truth of persecution, the challenge of persecution, and the hope of persecution. Truth, challenge, and hope. First thing we're going to look at is the truth of persecution. So Jesus says, and uh, again, this is we're coming off a series where he's, uh, he's on the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching to a group of his disciples, and he's going through and making these statements, right? These blessed statements about people. And we're coming to the last one now. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what's interesting is when you look at the language Jesus uses, in all the preceding statements, he uses kind of a language that's more intended for the group. Like, hey, you guys will be blessed if you do this, if you're meek or whatever. And in this particular moment, he shifts the language to be more personal. It's almost like uh, some scholars say that he's really leaning into this. He's trying to make a point, a specific point to really lean into the disciples and say, you need to hear this. Right? And so he goes on and says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness snake. And so the first thing we realize when we're looking at this text is what Jesus is saying. The truth about persecution is this. Persecution is an expectation and should be an expectation for those who follow Jesus. That there should be an expectation in our life. Now, that's different. Not a desire. Right? We don't want to walk around wanting or looking for persecution. But for those who follow Jesus, for disciples of Christ, there should be an expectation in our life that we will face persecution because of our faith in Jesus. Now, before we move on, it's important to know, and I kind of made a joke about me not being great to speak about persecution. It's important to know there are different kinds of persecution. Right? There are brothers and sisters in Christ right now in the world who are living in places where they could be killed because of their faith. They could be in prison because of their faith. They could be beaten and tortured because of their faith. Thankfully, for most of us in this country, we don't have to deal with that level of persecution or that type of persecution. But the message that Christ is saying still applies to us. There are different types of persecution. And for the Christian believer, what Christ is saying is there should be an expectation of persecution. The question is why? Why, why should we expect persecution? And the answer is found in the gospel. See, the truth about the gospel is the gospel, before it can be beautiful, is offensive. The gospel, before it changes us, offends us. And there's a reason why this is. The message of the gospel says some things about who we are as people that go against our very nature, 
right? The nature in our heart, what we think about ourselves, our pride, what we convince ourselves about who we are, the gospel literally goes against what we think and believe in our own hearts about our, 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 our significance and our, and our ability to take care of ourselves. Think about the statements of the gospel. The gospel tells us that we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. That you and I are broken beyond belief. That we, even when we don't realize it, we're constantly sinning and falling short and making mistakes. The gospel tells us that we are so broken and so sinful that the God of the universe had to save us. Right? It's, a, it's an uncomfortable reality. It's an it's a, it's a offensive message, especially in our culture today of self-sufficiency, that we are broken and we are our biggest problem. Jared Berry is Jared Berry's biggest problem. My sinful, broken heart. Right, But the gospel also tells us that we need a savior, that we actually need someone to rescue and save us, that we're so broken that we can't rescue and save us on our own, and that, that salvation is something that we can't even contribute to. Right, We're so, we've so messed up, we've so fallen short that we need someone to rescue us in a way that we can't contribute to it. We don't add anything to it. We don't earn God's love or grace or any of that, that he had to come and rescue us. Uh, one of the, Matt Norman, who wrote a great article on this, says it like this. He says, before the gospel is beautiful. It has to be offensive. The gospel is for the weak, not the strong. It's for the sick, not the healthy. It's for the foolish, not the wise. It is for the marginalized, not the accepted. It is for the needy, not the self-sufficient. It's for the inferior, not the superior. It's for the servant, not the master. It is for the dependent, not those in control. See, the gospel forces us to reconcile that truth about who we are. That we're not in control. We're not at the top. We're not the best. We don't know what's best for our hearts. We, we, we're, we're not the ones who, who, are, who, who should be telling others what to do and knows what's best for our own life. We're not, we're not up here. We're down here. The truth of the gospel is offensive to the human heart before it can become beautiful. Now, um, my wife and I, this summer, will celebrate 17 years married. And one thing I love about my wife is that she puts up with me, which is amazing. Um, now, one of the things I love about her is that after all these years, um, we have these moments and these conversations, and she's so good about challenging me in areas of my life and weaknesses that I have, areas of pride, areas of sin, areas of stuff. And we'll have conversation, and she'll point something out. Right? She'll say, what about this? And it's amazing to me that my reaction is almost always poor. <laughs> it's almost always terrible. Right? And I'm always, I always get angry. I get offensive, defensive. Right? I, I try to protect myself. And she's like, well, you know, you really, I've seen this in you. I'm, How dare you? you know? It's always my posture. It's always my reaction. And, and isn't it true, right, if you have a, maybe a spouse or a good friend who confronts you over something, a way in which you're not living the way that you should or acting the way that you should, what is our response? It's often offense. How could you say that? But what's amazing to me, the reason I love my, my wife is after almost 17 years of doing that and me always reacting poorly, what ends up happening is that truth that she speaks starts to sink into my heart. And what was once offensive starts to change me. And all of a sudden, I come out of that a changed and transformed person, and the truth of what she says becomes more beautiful to me because it actually moves me to be a better person. And in fact, she becomes more beautiful to me because she was willing to speak that into my heart, no matter how I reacted. 
See, what's offensive becomes beautiful oftentimes. But we have to go through the process of being offended and facing the reality of what that truth says for it to change our hearts and become beautiful. And so what Jesus is saying here is this. You will face persecution not because of your own choices, but for the gospel's sake. That when you're my disciple, when you're living out the principles of the gospel, when you're living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you will face those who, when they encounter you and they see how you live, what you love, what you chase, what you talk about, the things that you celebrate, how you spend your money, when they see all those things, there will be those who, when they're encountered with the truth of the gospel, will be offended by its message and oftentimes will respond with persecution. That will happen to the Christian believer. Now, it may happen in different ways. For some, they risk their very lives. For others, maybe you miss out on financial opportunities. Maybe you potentially lose some relationships. Maybe there's a lot of different ways that this can play out, right? But Jesus is telling us the truth of persecution is we should expect it if we're living out the gospel. The more potent the gospel is in our life, the more offensive it can be, but also the more change it can bring. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Mary when she has this ointment a couple days before Jesus is going to go to the cross, right? And she opens up this very expensive ointment and she pours it over him. And this would have been thousands of dollars worth of, of perfume. And she pours the whole thing out over him and it's this fragrant, potent perfume. And it's an amazing picture, an amazing story, because what happens? For some in that room, like Judas, who would go on to betray Jesus, the scent of that perfume being poured out on Jesus was offensive. It was offensive, right? It was so afraid. How could you do that? How could you waste that? Her worship over Christ was offensive to him. But to Christ, it was beautiful. And I think the same is true with the gospel. When we think about the power and message of the gospel, the reality is, even for the believer, it has to offend us before it can change us. It has to expose us before it can transform us. Before it can become beautiful, it has to be offensive. And so the question is this, and here's where I think the two challenges come. For many of us, we live a life unworthy of gospel persecution. And what I mean by that is this. We live a life that isn't potent enough for anyone to notice. Right? Again, to use the perfume analogy, if you, don't, if you don't have a perfume that is potent or strong, nobody will smell it, and therefore nobody will be offended. But that's the same point. If you don't have a perfume that is potent and strong, nobody can smell it, and nobody can be amazed at the beauty of that scent. See, for many of us, we've lived a life that isn't potent enough to even face the potential of persecution because the gospel hasn't become potent in our lives. The gospel hasn't transformed us in such a way that someone would look at us and see something different, would look at us and see transformation and change. For some of us, our life isn't potent. But for others of us, here's, I think, the other challenge is this. We face persecution for things that have nothing to do with the gospel. Remember, uh, David was talking about tonight, he's going to share the, the idea that, hey, unity, not uniformity, Right? 
Some of the problem that we face is that we desire uniformity, and so we have these lesser things, these personal preferences, these political views, these convictions that we have, and what we do is we look around and want everyone to look and act and be like us, and then we, we chase and pursue and talk about things that are not the gospel, but their personal preference and their desires, and then when we get backlash and persecution because of those things, we convince ourselves that we're doing it for the Lord and that this is a great thing, that we're being persecuted Persecuted for Christ's sake, when in fact you're being persecuted for your political belief, you're being persecuted for your own personal conviction, right? If you go on Twitter and do a Twitter rant over over which political party you think is wrong, and then someone says nasty, you're not being persecuted for the gospel, right? It's a different thing. But oftentimes in our life, we live a life uh, being persecuted, and we assume it's for the gospel. But in reality, what's actually happening is we're living outside of the gospel. We're living out the things that God has called us not to do. So when we walk around and we're mean and nasty and we're short with people, when we walk around and we don't have humility and meekness and brokenness, when we don't live out the fruit of the Spirit, when we don't have evidence of the gospel in our life, and then we interact with people, there's persecution that has nothing to do with the gospel. Sometimes it has to do with us, us just being a jerk. Right? Sometimes it has to do with us just caring too much about the wrong things, making lesser things the most important things. So the question is, is this. Is our life potent enough to be worthy of gospel persecution? And what things are we assuming are being our persecution because of the gospel that are in fact have nothing to do with Jesus at all? See, the truth about persecution is this. We should expect it as disciples of Christ. Number two, the hope of persecution. I'm sorry. Number two, the challenge of persecution. Now, the challenge of persecution is this. As we live out the gospel in our lives and the potency of that gospel arises, there may be some people who are offended, right? And because of that offense, because they they don't like what what the message of the gospel is saying about who they are and what that means for them, they therefore would lash out, you'd face persecution because of that gospel. And the thing about that persecution is it challenges the stuff that we hold dear. In fact, oftentimes persecution in life will ask you to lay down the things that we most treasure and trust in. The things that, those idols in our life, right? The things that we fill our hearts with. What is those things for you? Because when you go through moments of persecution, what it will do is it will ask you to lay those things down. Whether it's money, whether it's approval, whether it's security or comfort, persecution will always ask you to lay the things down in your heart that we tend to value the most. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and, and he says, hey, you should expect persecution. And then he goes on and says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why is he encouraging them to rejoice and be glad? It's because he knows persecution is inevitable, but he also knows what's inevitable is the temptation to run from it. There's this temptation within our heart to flee persecution that comes from the gospel. Because, let's be honest, it's uncomfortable. We don't like it, right? One of my my best friends, um, he's like a spiritual son to me, although he's not... I'm not old enough to be his dad. He's, he's quite a bit older, but his name is Namit, and Namit comes from an Indian, Indian home. I met him when he was a senior in high school. I was a youth pastor at the time, and he came to the church, and um, he came for the reason that many youth come to youth group, which is there was a girl he was interested in, and so, hey, we'll use whatever motives we can, right, to turn him to Jesus. So he comes, and he's hanging out, and and we're, we're, uh, we're spending time together. And the more and more time I spend together, eventually Namit becomes, the gospel starts to become more real. Jesus starts to become more beautiful to him. 
And the problem for Namit was Namit came from a very strict Hindu home. And in Hindu culture, they had no problem with you worshiping Jesus as long as Jesus was one of the many gods that they worshiped. And so as Namit began to become more serious about the gospel, as the potency of his life, the gospel in his life began began to get stronger and stronger, the persecution that he began to face from his family and the people around him began to grow. And so as we started to have a conversation, he became more and more serious about God. All of a sudden, he started to face issues like the potential of being kicked out of his home being cut off by his family, losing all of his relationships, losing finances, losing security, all of these things because of his faith. And as the potency and the realness, at first he didn't have to deal with it, right? Because the the potency of his faith wasn't that strong. It wasn't that evident. But the stronger he became, the more potent he became, the greater level of persecution that he endured. And consistently, I remember having conversations with him where he had to make choices. Do I lay these things down that I love? The approval of my parents, the relationships with my cousins and siblings who are saying they'll never speak to me again, my ability to know that I have a place to live and food to eat and finances, right? And so he's constantly dealing with this. And as he goes along, eventually one day he feels like God tells him, you're going to be a pastor. Now, Namit was on track to become a doctor. And in his culture, part of the responsibility of the son was to take care of your, your parents as you get older. And, and his parents didn't know much about what pastors did, but they did know that pastors don't make as much money as doctors. And so when Namit, had to, when Namit told them, hey, I'm going to be a pastor, the level of persecution all of a sudden grew to a tremendous amount. And every step of the way, right, he's having to deal with the reality that if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to live this life out, I'm going to have to lose potentially all the things that I love. So many things that I value and care about, I'm going to have to lay down for the sake of the gospel. And so he's going through and and he's wrestling through this and dealing with this. And and I I remember just pacing with him over and over and over. And and, and as time went on, as time went on and the potency of Namit's relationship with Jesus increased, his persecution increased. But you know what the amazing thing is? So did, so did the beauty of that potency, so did the beauty of the gospel in the people's lives around him. And as time went on and he endured the persecution, what you begin to see is life after life after life being transformed by the gospel lived out in the meat's life. And as you fast forward year after year after year, all of a sudden the, the relationship with his parents begin to transform. All of a sudden friends that had left him and cast him aside begin to come to know Jesus. All of a sudden people in his life that said they'd never speak to him, as they begin to see the reality of the gospel in his life, that potency went from being offensive to them to being beautiful to them. And all of those people that were around him that at one time were persecuting him, all of a sudden begin to come in faith in Christ. And to this day, Namit's now a pastor at the church. He took over the job that I I used to have, and he has led an incredible number of people to the Lord and discipled people. And God has, God has done an amazing thing in restoring his relationship with his family. And the more potent his relationship with God became, the more persecution he faced. But at the same time, the more beautiful the gospel became to the people around him. So this is truth of persecution, and there's challenge of persecution. If we are unwilling to lay down the things that our hearts love and trust in, if we're unwilling to stand in the midst of persecution and weather it, we may never see what was once offensive become beautiful to the people around us. We may never see it. The moment it gets hard, we run. 
we're going to miss out on seeing what God can do through our willingness to stand in persecution. Third thing I want to talk to you about is the hope of persecution. Pastor Anthony is going to come as we, as we get ready to close here. Jesus ends this statement. I'm going to read verse 11 to you again. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is calling us to rejoice and be glad in the midst of persecution. Now, the irony of this text is not wasted on me. The fact that Jesus is speaking to a group of people who very soon will all participate in persecution against him. Right? Judas literally will sell him out. The other disciples, Peter, will deny him. The other disciples will flee. It's not long after this statement that Jesus is talking to these these men and women that they will participate in either their sin or their abandonment of Jesus in persecuting him as he goes to the cross. So he's sitting there saying to them, and on the verge of Jesus facing the greatest level of persecution that we could ever imagine, he's saying, have hope and rejoice in the midst of your persecution. The question is, how? How do we do it? Maybe today some of you are facing it. You're in the midst of it. Maybe some of you are going, I need to lean in. I need to become more potent in my relationship so that I'm worthy of that. The question is, how do we do it? How do we have hope in the midst of persecution? How do we have hope in the midst of challenges because of our gospel faith? The answer lies in Jesus. There's a favorite book that I have. It's called Jesus of Theography. And the authors Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola tell this story about this woman who poured her perfume over over Christ. And it's a beautiful story because it happened just a couple of days before Jesus was going to go to the cross. And what they said was two interesting things. Number one, they said one of the interesting things about scent and smell is it's the number one scent attached to memory. So when you smell something, it's it's the number one thing that will trigger memories in human beings. And so they said the other thing that's interesting is in that time and culture, with the level of potency of the perfume that was poured out on Christ and how close his, his torture and persecution going to the cross was, it is highly likely that when Jesus was being tortured and beaten and go to the cross that he would have still been able to smell the perfume that was on him from Mary. And so they write this, and I want to read it to you if this is okay, to paint a picture of how do we have hope in the midst of persecution? It's that we look to Jesus, and in him we find the hope that we need. Here's what they say about that moment. It said, in the praetorium of Pilate's residence, the soldiers dressed Jesus in royal clothes like some play doll. They draped him over a scarlet robe. They stuck a reed in his hand to mock a scepter. And then they used an instrument to bludgeon Jesus on the head. They beat Jesus' head with their hands, fracturing his nasal bones. They took turns spitting in the contusions of his blindfolded face, and they knelt before him and taunted, Hail, the king of the Jews. Then they crushed onto his head the crown of thorns. And with blood and spit and sweat running down his face, Jesus looked around. Where were his disciples? Where were all his faithful followers? 
Where were all those whom he had healed? Where were all those whose eyes he had opened, whose ears he had unstopped, whose mouths he had opened, whose limbs he had restored? It was almost more than he could bear. Then Jesus smelled the perfume. And he remembered the woman with the hemorrhage of 12 years who had the faith to reach out and touch the hem of his garment and be healed. And Jesus kept on. And when the soldiers beat him with a whip until blood ran down his back like a waterfall, his skin already sensitive from the effects of sweating blood. And when, the, when they marched him 650 yards through the streets and made him climb the Via Della Rosa carrying a 150-pound cross on which his wrists were later to be nailed, reducing him to a beast of burden, being laid to a slaughterhouse. And when the weight of the cross produced contusions on his shoulders and back on that three-hour walk through the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha on the way to the cross, Jesus smelled the perfume. And he remembered the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, whom everyone thought was dead, but whom God healed when he spoke. Jesus kept on. And when they stripped him naked, nailed him to a cross that he'd carried, and they took those six-inch spikes and lacerated the median nerves in his hands and feet, and they lifted him up on the cross above the sinking garbage heap called Golgotha, Jesus smelled the perfume. And he remembered the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter and the Galilean official and his son, and he kept on. And when everyone passed by and mocked him on the cross, when the chief priests and scribes and even the thieves who were crucified with him taunted and teased him in his agony, and when the loneliness became so severe that he was ready to call down 10,000 angels to rescue him, Jesus looked around, and in the haze of hurt, he could barely make out the figures of the three Marys, his mother, his aunt, and Mary Magdalene, and Jesus smelled the perfume. And he remembered the many children brought to him by their mothers. Children jumped into his laps, lapped up his stories, and he kept on. And when his body, already in shock, hung from the wrist, and when he struggled to breathe to chant two of his favorite psalms, unable to expel even a small hiccup of sound without straightening his knees and raising himself on the fulcrum of his nailed feet. The only thing soldiers offered him was a parched throat so he could sing was a drink of vinegar, which only made singing more difficult. And when his crucifiers used him for entertainment, and when he searched the landscape for signs of love and faithfulness, and he saw he was abandoned by virtually everyone he ever loved, leading him to cry a prayer for his disciples as well for those who crucified him. Then Jesus smelled the perfume. And he remembered the woman who had given all she had so he would remember God's love for him. And in that smell, he could even detect the odors that reminded him that he was going home from whence he had came. See, how did Jesus suffer on our behalf? How did Jesus endure persecution on our behalf? It's because he looked at you and I on that cross and he said, they're worth it. He said, you're worth it. You are worth enduring the pain and the suffering and the persecution that my love for you, your value to me is so significant that you are worth it. And he looked around at the world, the broken creation, and he thought about the one day when the kingdom of heaven would invade earth, when all wrong things would be made right, when all sickness would be healed, when all brokenness would be turned into beauty. And he said, it's worth it. My persecution, my suffering is worth it because one day all wrong things will be made right. 
So this morning, when we are in the midst of persecution, when we're wondering, how do I do this? What's the hope? How can, I, how can I keep going? How can I endure? We look to Christ and we remind our hearts, it's worth it. The people around us are worth it. It's worth living the gospel out to see transformation in the lives of those who come to know Jesus. They're worth it. It's worth seeing God transform a community and neighborhood and the world that we live in. It's worth it. And one day, when he returns... All of us will say it was worth it. There's hope in the midst of persecution. Can you bow your heads with me? I'd love to pray for you this morning, and we're going to sing a song to close. I want to encourage you, let let this be our, our heart this morning. God, let me live a life that is potent with the gospel so that those around me will see who you are. Let them not be offended by my sin. Let them not be offended by my stupidity. Let them not be offended by my shortcomings. If they're gonna be offended, God, let them be offended by the gospel so that that offense can turn into beauty, so that offense can turn into transformation. And in the midst of persecution, in the midst of dealing with that offense, God, give me the strength to not run, but to lean in. Give me the strength to live this out. Give me the strength to lean into the suffering, to the challenges. Give me the strength to be willing to lay down the things that I tend to fill my heart with. If it's relationships, it's if money, whatever that security, comfort, whatever those things are, help me to lay those things down for your mission. Help me to know and believe and trust it's worth it. If it was worth it for you, it's worth it for me. Jesus, that's our prayer this morning. Help us do that. It's in your name we pray. Everybody said, amen.